history of European theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 110, The Plays The Thing, Elizabethan Acting Style and Stage Conventions. Last time, the star actors of the day took centre stage, as they were so used to doing in their time, and, I like to think, would be happy to know that they were back in the limelight once again. But then they wouldn't have made much sense of that expression, as the limelight effect, a process where oxygen and hydrogen were mixed, ignited and forced into a cylinder of quicklime to create a bright illuminating light, wasn't discovered until the 1820s, and first used in a theatre in 1836. No, On the Elizabethan stage, with its dependency on natural lighting and the acoustics of the wooden playhouse, the players must have been much more reliant on acting techniques, the use of stage conventions and the size of their personalities to convey the message of the stories that they were telling. Well, maybe, but perhaps it's not quite that simple. When we try to look at the acting styles and the stage conventions of the period, we have several problems – not least of which is that there are, of course, no recordings of performances. We literally cannot hear or see how the players presented themselves or overcame the challenges of the theatre of their time. In addition to this, there are virtually no written records by the actors themselves and certainly no in-depth ruminations on their art. But we do have some commentary by contemporaries in the audience, some by playwrights and some contained within the plays themselves. From these sources, it is possible to piece together some broad suggestions about the art of playing at the time. But we have to be very cautious. In the latter case particularly, that of discussions of the art within plays, we have to think carefully about why a playwright would be including comments on the art of playing, and what their biases might be. We have already heard how vitriolic playwrights could be about each other when creating satire in particular. And more generally, any comments by individuals could simply be a reflection of their particular tastes and experience of theatre and can't necessarily be taken as a commentary on the state of the art of playing as a whole. That said, let's see what we can reasonably infer and extrapolate from what we have, while remembering that in a period of a century or so from the very beginnings of the public theatre to the theatre closures in 1660, public tastes and expectations – theatre technology and literary preferences and skills were bound to develop and change, so we cannot speak of a single acting style or static stage conventions. As everything builds on what has gone before, perhaps a good place to start would be to look at how a player learned their craft. I've already discussed how many of the playwrights came from the universities and the improving school system, where education in the classics and training in rhetoric and debate were central to the curriculum. But the same can't be said of professional players as a group. As you already know, theatrical playing was not a recognised profession, meaning that there was no Players Guild, and no formal preserved history and tradition from the medieval period that the recognised trades had. Playing was only preserved by its practitioners in, at best, a semi-formal way, and any common traditions that there were then had the significant interruption of the religious reformation period that led to a slow demise in the religious cycle play and, in many towns, a general reduction in the amount of playing that was seen by the general population. But playing did continue 
and there's some evidence that experienced players would take on young men under their wing as apprentices in all but name, following the traditions and practices of the trade guild system. As we've seen with Burbage and Allen, and there are other examples, a family connection could also be a way into the job. But it's impossible to say which was the more typical route. Young boys were taken from their families to become boy players for the various troops that operated, some willingly, some not so, and many of them, we have to assume, would have become professional actors as adults. Boys taken on in the role of a player's apprentice probably started out working as a servant for the experienced player while learning their way around the theatre and the theatrical life. But there's no evidence of any formalising of a progression through backstage or front-of-house work into small parts and then onto leading roles. However, there are letters from actors to the likes of Richard Burbage expressing gratitude and admiration for the special relationship the younger player had under his guidance which is similar to the way that a successful tradesman would thank their former masters. So it seems reasonable to say that this form of apprenticeship in all but name did exist for players. There's no suggestion that players were university graduates, but they worked with playwrights who were, and some at least were grammar school men who still had a decent grounding in Latin, the classics, and some of the new mathematical and scientific theories. One of the main thrusts of the grammar school education was to instil a control of emotion in young men, a training that would have been very useful for a budding player. Control the emotions, and the voice and the movement can also be controlled, and words can be placed carefully into the rhythms of a play. Looking at the earlier plays of the period, it's generally accepted that the style was of a poetic reading rather than one of dramatic action. Plays like Gorboduck that I discussed in an earlier episode are very static and clearly come from the university learning that promoted the importance of skilled rhetoric. That training and the nature of the plays fit a more declamatory style of delivery, something that had deep-seated traditions that went back to the lecture hall of the university and even further to the church pulpit. Although probably not a university man, Shakespeare's early dramatic poems show a similar rhetorical style, as one might expect from poems designed to be read aloud, and the early plays Titus Andronicus and Two Gentlemen of Verona, in particular, are criticised for long static speeches that do little to progress the action or develop the characters in a manner that is integrated with the plot. Marlowe's Tamburlaine the Great can be seen in the same light, But these failings can be said simply to be young playwrights working in the style of their time as they try to find their own voice, which of course they both would do in their own ways in a very short time. That rhetorical style is also sometimes referred to as the presentational acting style. That perhaps better suggests that the style was expansive and clear enough for an audience to have no doubts about the intentions and actions of the characters. The consensus among scholars is that movements and gestures were usually very pronounced and stylized, and that being natural was not what was expected from an Elizabethan actor. Early period plays like these would surely have lent themselves to a rhetorical and declamatory style of acting, where projecting the words of the playwright out over the groundlings to the balconies would have been the imperative for the players in the theatre and the curtain. 
but there were other venues, and the nature of the spaces must have made a difference to how players presented work. With the establishment of indoor theatres located in the inns and then in bespoke spaces, to enable year-round performances, and with the requirement to perform semi-regularly at the more intimate setting of the court, players must have had a slightly different approach to each venue. And also, there's no suggestion that exactly the same style was used for tragedy and comedy. Players, I think we can assume, were sensitive to the performance spaces and the nature of their audience. And for the court, the inns of court and other smaller spaces, and perhaps for comic plays generally, the rhetorical style was probably toned down. The more rhetorical style of the early plays is only one of the factors that led to theatre becoming a poetic form. Poetry had been the most admired literary form since the medieval period, and the rediscovery of the Roman and Greek poetic forms only increased its standing. So it always was a sound choice for the well-educated who wished to write plays, and who didn't see any need to make them naturalistic. Not only was the increased power and meaning that poetry could provide well understood and admired, but at this point there was no tradition of naturalism coming from the medieval cycle plays, the morality plays or the court entertainments, with the only exception to this perhaps being the lowest form of comedy, what we might call rustic entertainments where the low characters portrayed were closer to real life than any others. But even there, rhymed doggerel rather than natural speech patterns was used more often than not. Add to this that poetry, and particularly rhymed poetry, had long been used as an aid to remember long-learned passages, in an age where reciting literature was the norm and reading the printed word an expensive exception. And the choice for poetic theatre seems perfectly natural. The point where the rhetorical style became tempered and then overtaken by something in a somewhat more naturalistic vein is put at 1590, or thereabouts. About that time, some criticism emerges about the rhetorical style in the playhouse, which is seen to be too extravagant and verbose, too stilted and lacking in theatrical interest. Although we cannot be exact about the timing of Marlowe's plays, the difference between Tamburlaine and Dr Faustus is striking and illustrative of this change. Tamburlaine is effectively a dramatic poem, but Dr Faustus, although it does contain long speeches and complex poetic imagery, is filled with highly dramatic and very visual action. Theatre was still very much about the words of the playwright, the ideas he expressed and the active imagination of the audience but it was also about the presentation on the stage. Costumes could be sumptuous and an important feature in signalling the role and status of a character. As we've heard from Henslow, much attention and expense was lavished on costumes, but they were still only indicative rather than realistic, supporting the words in the play and, no doubt, impressing the audience and adding to the magic of their experience. In a time when the rules of how to dress in life were formalised into the legal code through the sumptuary laws, costume on stage must have spoken very clearly to the audience, making it clear in a simple way about the status of characters even before they spoke. Stage sets were even simpler, a prop tree indicating a forest, a throne standing in for the splendour of a king's court. And that simplicity did not change throughout the period 
but theatrical effects and, most significantly, theatrical action on stage did. Polonius is stabbed on stage, albeit behind the arras. We see King Lear wandering the moor. We see countless murders and revenge killings. We don't just hear report of these happenings, as had been the convention previously. Faustus is dragged into hell in front of our eyes. We hear the cannons roar in battle and the storm rage around Prospero. There is a chicken-and-egg question about which change came first and then prompted others. Perhaps the ambition of the playwrights to dig deeper into the human psyche is the key. But equally, the player's desire to entertain and to play dramatic action could be a factor. Advances in theatre technology, particularly sound effects from cannon and thunder sheets, and to other items like trapdoors, helped as the playhouse matured, as, we might assume, did a rise in audience expectations and experience. And always at the centre of these changes were the players with their very special skill set. The skills of the orator are still important, but Thomas Hayward, writing in his Apology for Actors in 1612, sees that these must be matched by a skilful movement of the body too. The actor must, he says, charm our attention. And at his best, he maintains, the actor doth not strive to make nature monstrous. She is often seen in the same scene with him, but neither on stilts or crutches. And for his voice, tis not lower than the prompter, nor louder than the folly and target. By this action, he fortifies moral perception with example. For what we see him personate, we think truly doth before us. A man of a deep thought might apprehend that ghosts of our ancient heroes walked again, and take him at several times for many of them. That seems to suggest the appeal of the actor's personality, but also perhaps a more natural style of acting, that better benefited the need for the player to fulfil many different, but many more realistic roles. Roles where individual character was being used more and more by the playwrights to question the nature of previously accepted universal truths. This is still highly dramatic action in the rise and fall of tragedy, in the great deeds of kings, and even in the topsy-turvy world of comedies. But what the player needed to deliver in this understanding of character and action was becoming both more complex and much more subtle. When Shakespeare called for the well-graced actor, it isn't entirely clear what he considered those attributes to be. But clearly, the best actors needed something special, a presence of their own of the type that would lead to the exuberant post-mortem phase that the likes of Burbage, Kemp and Allen would receive. Talent, yes, but also perhaps what we would now call stage presence, and the most mysterious of all attributes, charisma. The closest thing that we have to a description of a good actor comes again from Thomas Hayward, when he says, Actors should be men picked out personable, according to the parts they present. They should be rather scholars that, though they cannot speak well, know how to speak, or else to have that vocabulary that they can speak well, though they understand not what, and so both imperfection may by instructions be helped and amended. But when a good tongue and a good conceit both fail, there can never be good actor. Interestingly there, Hayward seems to suggest that players should have a hinterland of scholarship to inform the art, 
and it is through this combination that true meaning can be found in a role. And that sounds not so different from the later ideas of the unexpressed subtext of a role being found. His comments come from later in the period, and are in tune with the playwrights who were starting to produce work where the psychology of characters and ideas of truthful and personal expression of individuals were becoming more common in tragedy in particular. Being able to recite poetic lines and convey their meaning remained a key part for an actor's skill. Once iambic pentameter was developed and then used to ever-increasingly powerful effect through Marlowe's first attempts and the improvements made by his successors, it's tempting to think that the player's job became easier. After all, everything is in the lines of verse, set out for you to perform. Speak it well and clearly, and the rhymes and meanings will become obvious. But of course, it's not so simple. Although some practitioners treat it as a very rigid verse form, it can be approached with some flexibility, and meanings can be changed with subtle and not-so-subtle changes of emphasis. It can be recited in a conversational way, or as rhetoric, and most things in between. Playwrights often included punctuation that went against the strict reading of the pentameter, and for some the rhyme should not be slavishly adhered to at the expense of the meaning. I'll leave it there on iambic pentameter for the moment, as it is certainly a subject I'll be returning to in the future, as with its natural rhythmic appeal of the heartbeat and this flexibility, this particular verse form became quickly, arguably, the most powerful in theatrical history and a gift to a player who could master it. While speaking of the importance of verse, it's timely to be reminded that plays were written in a mixture of styles, which often varied based on the type of characters who were speaking. Kings, emperors and the lords may have spoken in stylized verse, but often the lower-class character speech was somewhat colloquialized prose. Blank, unrhymed verse was commonly used, but at other times, rhyming couplets and other verse forms appeared. Playwrights crafted their work so that the audience could hear the difference in the characters which acted as a shorthand into what might be expected from them. Thanks again to Thomas Hayward, we have a very rare example of two actors compared in the same role, but even this is very fleeting. In 1630, there was a performance of Marlowe's The Jew of Malta, to which Thomas Hayward wrote a new prologue. In it, he eulogises Edward Allen's original performance as Barabbas the Jew, but also praises actor Richard Perkins, who learnt his trade under Allen, as a new master of the role. Hayward isn't expansive on how the performances differed, but as the later performance was for the small cockpit theatre, it's assumed that Perkins gave a quieter and a more intimate interpretation of the role, a role that still demands energy and chutzpah, regardless of the setting. Allen, we might assume, gave a performance that was large, bombastic, and perhaps would seem more caricature than character study to us. As the public theatre developed alongside the art of playwriting, stage conventions developed that we can now see as particularly belonging to the 16th and 17th centuries. Perhaps the most well-known is the soliloquy, that moment when a character is left alone on the stage and verbalises his innermost thoughts. The soliloquy is closely related to the monologue and somewhat to the aside, 
so it's difficult to say when the first true soliloquy was created. Thomas Kidd and other earlier writers included monologues for their leading characters, and that came close. But even before that, the monologues in Every Man could qualify. Perhaps what marks out the true soliloquy is the idea that it is the point where the character speaks truth, or at least the truth as they understand it, shedding any artifice or deceit that they may engage in elsewhere in the play. Marlowe's foray into the soliloquy is closely linked to the acting prowess of Edward Allen, for whom he wrote his major roles. Allen himself is said to have seen the great value in the good soliloquy, a theatrical feat that could become a calling card for a good player. Marlowe clearly agreed, the Jew of Malta includes several impressive and thought-provoking soliloquies that reveal the psychological tensions within Barabbas. Shakespeare was, of course, its most famous exponent, with Hamlet's to-be-or-not-to-be soliloquy being, for many, the pinnacle of the convention. That, I would suggest, is because much of the play is concerned with the inner thoughts and motivations of the young prince, so the soliloquy is a perfect fit for his brooding on the meaning of life. Clearly, it takes on a big subject, designed to leave the audience pondering the questions long after the stage has been cleared of bodies. By the relatively late appearance of Hamlet, the soliloquy was a well-used tool that must have been very familiar to the audience and understood as a convention. I think we can assume that the players also liked the soliloquy very much. All that attention focused on them alone, giving them the chance to still the rowdiest of audiences. Shakespeare is seen as the master of the soliloquy, not just for that one example. And his skill was to use the convention not only to show the inner workings of the character, but to progress the plot as well. It is in soliloquy that we learn how fear stalks Macbeth, how Richard III sees his position as king, how Brutus believes that he's just a good citizen trying to do the right thing for the Republic. In the right hands, it was a powerful dramatic tool. The aside, where a character speaks directly to the audience, often in a conspiratorial manner to impart some information relating to the plot, was another convention used in the period. The interjection, which we would now recognise as breaking the fourth wall, and still a very familiar device, was typically short and factual, certainly not a monologue or a soliloquy, although it could be used to briefly explain a motivation for a specific action. The aside could also provide a poignant moment of foreshadowing, as Romeo does when he sees that his relationship with Juliet may lead to a bad end because of the feuding of the two families. Eavesdropping was a convention that we might see as related to the aside, except in this case the convention was that a character could conveniently overhear others while remaining undetected himself. The overheard conversation included the audience again in a conspiratorial manner and was often used as a useful method for advancing the plot. Roman theatre used similar conventions and, of course, shared the use of pillars, doors and balconies as part of the stage, giving ample hiding places. The art of overhearing and of being on stage while apparently not being seen by other characters required a degree of suspension of disbelief on behalf of the audience. 
They had to be accepting of these conventions for them to work in the theatrical context and, given the longevity of these conventions, we have to assume that they were. The portrayal of female characters by boy actors should also get a mention here, although it was a convention driven by the prohibition of women acting on stage rather than a theatrical choice. It is perhaps one of the hardest conventions to imagine how it was received and interpreted by the audience. Were they simply accepting of the portrayal of female characters by men, or did it appear strange to them? In my reading, I've not got a sense of any significant pushback against the prohibition for women on stage, and of course, it had been that way through medieval theatre too, so it was a very long-standing convention. And perhaps it was just accepted that this was the way things should be. The play within the play is perhaps one of the stranger conventions that stuck. Its common predecessor was the dumb show, used to prefigure and explain the point of a play prior to the main action, which came out of the cycle plays and particularly the morality plays of the late medieval period. Thomas Kidd used the technique in the Spanish tragedy, following this long tradition, but again it was Shakespeare who used it to full effect. For example, by making the performance of The Murder of Gonzago by the travelling players within Hamlet fully part of the plot, he took it well beyond the dumb show origins. This is where he also takes the opportunity to discuss the art of playing. Surely we hear Shakespeare the playwright and the actor speaking when Hamlet says to his actors, Speak the speech, I pray you, as I've pronounced it to you, trippingly on the tongue. But if you mouth it, as many of your players do, I had as lief the town crier speak my lines, nor do not saw the air too much with your hand thus, but use it gently. For in the very torrent, tempest, and, as I may say, the whirlwind of passion, you must acquire and beget the temperance that may give it smoothness. And a little later, he again, via Hamlet, implores, Suit the action to the word, and the word to the action with this special observance that you not o'erstep nor the modesty of nature. For anything so overdone is from the purpose of playing, whose end, both in the first and now, was and is, to hold as twere the mirror up to nature, to show virtue her own feature, scorn her own image, and the very age and body of time his form and presence. From which I think we can deduce with some confidence that Shakespeare preferred the new moderation in acting that replaced the rhetorical style. That certainly fits with his ability to craft the iambic pentameter, which he wrote with punctuated breaks that added clarity to the meaning of the verse for the player and audience alike. In respect of the stage conventions of the day, Shakespeare made good use of what was already understood and accepted, rather than being an innovator himself. His great talent was in constructing realistic psychological portraits of characters through poetry. In the more technical aspects, his plays contained all of the traditional conventions. Hamlet isn't the only Shakespearean example of the play within a play convention. He also used its great effect in A Midsummer Night's Dream, where the mechanicals decide to stage a play as a wedding present for the nobles. Their hopeless production of Pyramus and Thisbe adds a layer of farce to the larger comedy of the overall play. But it also allowed Shakespeare to, once again, comment on the nature of theatre itself. Not this time just on the art of acting, but on the nature of the relationship with the audience. 
To comic effect, the amateur actors erroneously assume that the audience will not be able to distinguish between fiction and reality. The play within a play also parodies much of the rest of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Pyramus and Thisbe are lovers who, facing opposition from their parents, elope, just as Hermia and Lysander do. So, even as the lovers make fun of the ridiculous performance of the play, the audience, which is watching the lovers watch the amateurs play, is aware that the lovers have been just as absurd. Shakespeare actually stretched the play within a play idea even further, as the story of Lysander and Hermia is one that Oberon desires to create. He is the playwright-in-chief of the piece, not that the lessons learned by the various characters are exactly as he intended, thanks to the hapless intervention of Puck and Bottom and their friends. If ever there was a play that spoke to the inherent magic and transformational qualities of theatre, A Midsummer Night's Dream is it. And finally, on the subject of conventions, I should mention The Mask. The form, as a courtly entertainment, grew out of the late medieval court entertainments and, by Elizabethan period, had become a verse entertainment of an intellectual thrust. It involved grand and intricate sets and costumes, with the often fantastical characters of myth and legend telling allegorical stories in elaborate masks. Singing and dancing were key features of the mask, and many of the playwrights of the day, most notably Ben Jonson, were involved in writing and producing masks for the court. It's possible that the mask, which became very popular in the Jacobean period, played a significant role in the move away from the declamatory style towards a more intimate presentation. The patronage of the arts by James I, and of masks in particular, allowed for the form to flourish. Between 1603 and 1616, there were 177 recorded masks at court. That's one performance a month on average, over a 13-year period. Plenty of time and exposure for actors to refine their acting to this situation. It's also suggested that an intimate performance to the more educated audience allowed the playwrights and designers to experiment with form and content more than they were likely to do when creating work for the mixed mass audience of the playhouses. And I'll leave it there on masks for now, as I feel sure I'll be returning to them in more detail in the future. The stage conventions of the Elizabethan period were derived from an amalgamation of several sources. Some stretched back into the medieval period, some were born of the practicalities of the large public playhouse, some came from acting techniques handed down from player to apprentice, and before that from clown to travelling minstrel. As we've seen before, even at the times when theatre goes a little quiet, it is still preserved by a few practitioners who play their part in ushering in a new period. The declamatory, presentational style that came out of training in rhetoric was the first step in the development of a more subtle form of acting that relied on existing conventions, but was largely driven by the desire of playwrights to craft more intricate and believable characters on stage. But this change is a difficult one to plot out, thanks to the lack of documentary evidence. Theatrical practice of the time can be inferred, but it remains largely unknown to us. Theatre is, after all, an ephemeral form. In conclusion, it's interesting to note that after the 18-year hiatus when theatres reopened in 1660, 
The gap was long enough to mean that there was all but a complete break with traditions of the Elizabethan and Jacobean theatre. No apprentice followed a master player. Those who did survive that period had to find work on the continent where they, and the exiled king, discovered practices and conventions of the European stage that they then brought back to England. The new liberalism that came with the court-supported theatre activities ushered in an era where the English stage became more familiar with the practices of the European stage and, as a result, adopted some of their innovations, marking an end to much that had gone before. Next time, as we're not quite done yet with the English Renaissance period, I'm going to take a look at another play, Arden of Faversham. It is interesting as an example of the domestic tragedy genre, but also because of questions of its authorship. In the meantime, please join the Facebook page or group, or find the podcast on Instagram or X to keep up to date with new episodes and other theatre-related things. You can find details of ways to support the podcast at the website, which is www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com. If you do feel able to help out with the costs of running the podcast, then please head over to Patreon, where you'll find additional content for a small monthly fee or a one-off donation. You can find all the details about that on the website. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via x at thoetp. (laughs) Thank you.